Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, The Woman in White, the great psychological thriller from Wilkie Collins, first released in 1860 and the seventh book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here's Marilyn to read us Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. Eleven. The inquest was hurried for certain local reasons which weighed with the coroner and the town authorities. It was held on the afternoon of the next day. I was necessarily one among the witnesses summoned to assist the objects of the investigation. My first proceeding in the morning was to go to the post office and inquire for the letter which I expected from Marion. No change of circumstances, however extraordinary, could affect the one great anxiety which weighed on my mind while I was away from London. The morning's letter, which was the only assurance I could receive that no misfortune had happened in my absence, was still the absorbing interest with which my day began. To my relief, the letter from Marion was at the office waiting for me. Nothing had happened. They were both as safe and as well as when I had left them. Laura sent her love, and begged that I would let her know of my return a day beforehand. Her sister added, in explanation of this message, that she had saved nearly a sovereign out of her own private purse, and that she had claimed the privilege of ordering the dinner and giving the dinner which was to celebrate the day of my return. I read these little domestic confidences in the bright morning with the terrible recollection of what had happened the evening before, vivid in my memory. The necessity of sparing Laura any sudden knowledge of the truth was the first consideration which the letter suggested to me. I wrote at once to Marian to tell her what I have told in these pages, presenting the tidings as gradually and gently as I could— and warning her not to let any such thing as a newspaper fall in Laura's way while I was absent. In the case of any other woman, less courageous and less reliable, I might have hesitated before I ventured on unreservedly disclosing the whole truth. But I owed it to Marion to be faithful to my past experience of her, and to trust her as I trusted myself. My letter was necessarily a long one, it occupied me until the time came for proceeding to the inquest. The objects of the legal inquiry were necessarily beset by peculiar complications and difficulties. Besides the investigation into the manner in which the deceased had met his death, there were serious questions to be settled relating to the cause of the fire, to the abstraction of the keys, and to the presence of a stranger in the vestry at the time when the flames broke out. Even the identification of the dead man had not yet been accomplished. The helpless condition of the servant had made the police distrustful of his asserted recognition of his master. They had sent to Knowlesbury overnight to secure the attendance of witnesses who were well acquainted with the personal appearance of Sir Percival Glyde, and they had communicated the first thing in the morning with Blackwater Park. These precautions enable the coroner and jury to settle the question of identity and to confirm the correctness of the servant's assertion 
the evidence offered by competent witnesses and by the discovery of certain facts being subsequently strengthened by an examination of the dead man's watch. The crest and the name of Sir Percival Glyde were engraved inside it. The next inquiries related to the fire. The servant and I, and the boy who had heard the light struck in the vestry, were the first witnesses called. The boy gave his evidence clearly enough, but the servant's mind had not yet recovered the shock inflicted on it. He was plainly incapable of assisting the objects of the inquiry, and he was desired to stand down. To my own relief, my examination was not a long one. I had not known the deceased. I had never seen him. I was not aware of his presence at Old Wilmingham, and I had not been in the vestry at the finding of the body. All I could prove was that I had stopped at the clerk's cottage to ask my way, that I had heard from him of the loss of the keys, that I had accompanied him to the church to render what help I could, that I had seen the fire, that I had heard some person unknown inside the vestry trying vainly to unlock the door, and that I had done what I could from motives of humanity to save the man. Other witnesses, who had been acquainted with the deceased, were asked if they could explain the mystery of his presumed abstraction of the keys and his presence in the burning room. But the coroner seemed to take it for granted, naturally enough, that I, as a total stranger in the neighbourhood, and a total stranger to Sir Percival Glyde, could not be in a position to offer any evidence on these two points. The course that I was myself bound to take, when my formal examination had closed, seemed clear to me. I did not feel called on to volunteer any statement of my own private convictions in the first place, because my doing so could serve no practical purpose, now that all proof in support of any surmises of mine was burnt with the burnt register. In the second place, I could not have intelligibly stated my opinion my unsupported opinion, without disclosing the whole story of the conspiracy, and producing beyond a doubt the same unsatisfactory effect on the minds of the coroner and the jury which I had already produced on the mind of Mr. Carroll. In these pages, however, and after the time that has now elapsed, no such cautions and restraints as are here described need fetter the free expression of my opinion. I will state briefly— before my pen occupies itself with other events, how my own convictions led me to account for the abstraction of the keys, for the outbreak of the fire, and for the death of the man. The news of my being free on bail drove Sir Percival, as I believe, to his last resources. The attempted attack on the road was one of those resources, and the suppression of all practical proof of his crime by destroying the page of the register on which the forgery had been committed was the other, and the surest of the two. If I could produce no extract from the original book to compare with the certified copy at Knowlesbury, I could produce no positive evidence, and could threaten him with no fatal exposure." All that was necessary to the attainment of his end was that he should get into the vestry unperceived, that he should tear out the page in the register, and that he should leave the vestry again as privately as he had entered it. On this supposition, it is easy to understand why he waited until nightfall before he made the attempt, and why he took advantage of the clerk's absence to possess himself of the keys. 
Necessity would oblige him to strike a light to find his way to the right register, and common caution would suggest his locking the door on the inside in case of intrusion on the part of any inquisitive stranger, or on my part, if I happened to be in the neighborhood at the time. I cannot believe that it was any part of his intention to make the destruction of the register appear to be the result of accident by purposely setting the vestry on fire. The bare chance that prompt assistance might arrive and that the books might, by the remotest possibility, be saved would have been enough, on a moment's consideration, to dismiss any idea of this sort from his mind. Remembering the quantity of combustible objects in the vestry, the straw, the papers, the packing cases, the dry wood, the old worm-eaten presses, all the probabilities, in my estimation, point to the fire as the result of an accident with his matches or his light. His first impulse, under these circumstances, was doubtless to try to extinguish the flames, and failing in that, his second impulse, ignorant as he was of the state of the lock, had been to attempt to escape by the door which had given him entrance. When I had called to him, the flames must have reached across the door leading into the church, on either side of which the presses extended, and close to which the other combustible objects were placed. In all probability, the smoke and flame, confined as they were to the room, had been too much for him when he tried to escape by the inner door. He must have dropped in his death swoon. He must have sunk in the place where he was found, just as I got on the roof to break the skylight window. Even if we had been able, afterwards, to get into the church and to burst open the door from that side, the delay must have been fatal. He would have been past saving, long past saving, by that time. We should only have given the flames free ingress into the church." the church which was now preserved, but which in that event would have shared the fate of the vestry. There is no doubt in my mind, there can be no doubt in the mind of anyone, that he was a dead man before ever we got to the empty cottage, and worked with might and main to tear down the beam. This is the nearest approach that any theory of mine can make towards accounting for a result which was visible matter of fact. As I have described them, so events pass to us outside. As I have related it, so his body was found. The inquest was adjourned over one day. No explanation that the eye of the law could recognize having been discovered thus far to account for the mysterious circumstances of the case. It was arranged that more witnesses should be summoned, and that the London solicitor of the deceased should be invited to attend. A medical man was also charged with the duty of reporting on the mental condition of the servant, which appeared at present to debar him from giving any evidence of the least importance. He could only declare, in a dazed way, that he had been ordered, on the night of the fire, to wait in the lane, and that he knew nothing else, except that the deceased was certainly his master. My own impression was— that he had been first used, without any guilty knowledge on his own part, to ascertain the fact of the clerk's absence from home on the previous day, and that he had been afterwards ordered to wait near the church, but out of sight of the vestry, 
to assist his master in the event of my escaping the attack on the road, and of a collision occurring between Sir Percival and myself. It is necessary to add that the man's own testimony was never obtained to confirm this view. The medical report of him declared that what little mental faculty he possessed was seriously shaken. Nothing satisfactory was extracted from him at the adjourned inquest, and for aught I know to the contrary, he may never have recovered to this day. I returned to the hotel at Wilmingham so jaded in body and mind, so weakened and depressed by all that I had gone through, as to be quite unfit to endure the local gossip about the inquest, and to answer the trivial questions that the talkers addressed to me in the coffee-room. I withdrew from my scanty dinner to my cheap garret chamber to secure myself a little quiet, and to think undisturbed of Laura and Marion. If I had been a richer man, I would have gone back to London, and would have comforted myself with the sight of the two dear faces again that night. But I was bound to appear, if called on, at the adjourned inquest, and doubly bound to answer my bail before the magistrate at Nosebury. Our slender resources had suffered already, and the doubtful future, more doubtful now than ever, made me dread decreasing our means unnecessarily by allowing myself an indulgence even at the small cost of a double railway journey in the carriages of the second class. The next day, the day immediately following the inquest, was left at my own disposal. I began the morning by again applying at the post-office for my regular report from Marion. It was waiting for me, as before, and it was written throughout in good spirits. I read the letter thankfully, and then set forth with my mind at ease for the day to go to Old Wilmingham and to view the scene of the fire by the morning light. What changes met me when I got there? Through all the ways of our unintelligible world, the trivial and the terrible walk hand in hand together. The irony of circumstances holds no mortal catastrophe in respect. When I reached the church, the trampled condition of the burial ground was the only serious trace left to tell of the fire and the death. A rough hoarding of boards had been knocked up before the vestry doorway, Rude caricatures were scrawled on it already, and the village children were fighting and shouting for the possession of the best peephole to see through. On the spot where I had heard the cry for help from the burning room, on the spot where the panic-stricken servant had dropped on his knees, a fussy flock of poultry was now scrambling for the first choice of worms after the rain, and on the ground at my feet, where the door and its dreadful burden had been laid. A workman's dinner was waiting for him, tied up in a yellow basin, and his faithful cur in charge was yelping at me for coming near the food. The old clerk, looking idly at the slow commencement of the repairs, had only one interest that he could talk about now. The interest of escaping all blame for his own part on account of the accident that had happened. One of the village women whose white, wild face I remembered the picture of terror when we pulled down the beam, was giggling with another woman, the picture of inanity, over an old washing-tub. There is nothing serious in mortality. Solomon, in all his glory, 
was Solomon with the elements of the contemptible lurking in every fold of his robes and in every corner of his palace. As I left the place, my thoughts turned, not for the first time, to the complete overthrow that all present hope of establishing Laura's identity had now suffered through Sir Percival's death. He was gone, and with him the chance was gone which had been the one object of all my labours and all my hopes. Could I look at my failure from no truer point of view than this? Suppose he had lived. Would that change of circumstance have altered the result? Could I have made my discovery a marketable commodity, even for Laura's sake, after I had found out that robbery of the rights of others was the essence of Sir Percival's crime? Could I have offered the price of my silence for his confession of the conspiracy, when the effect of that silence must have been to keep the right heir from the estates and the right owner from the name? Impossible. If Sir Percival had lived, the discovery from which, in my ignorance of the true nature of the secret, I had hoped so much, could not have been mine to suppress or to make public, as I thought best, for the vindication of Laura's rights. In common honesty and common honour, I must have gone at once to the stranger whose birthright had been usurped. I must have renounced the victory at the moment when it was mine by placing my discovery unreservedly in that stranger's hands, and I must have faced afresh all the difficulties which stood between me and the one object of my life, exactly as I was resolved in my heart of hearts to face them now. I returned to Wilmingham with my mind composed, feeling more sure of myself and my resolution than I had felt yet. On my way to the hotel, I passed the end of the square in which Mrs. Catherick lived. Should I go back to the house and make another attempt to see her? No. The news of Sir Percival's death, which was the last news she ever expected to hear, must have reached her hour since. All the proceedings at the inquest had been reported in the local paper that morning. There was nothing I could tell her which she did not know already. My interest in making her speak had slackened. I remembered the furtive hatred in her face when she said, "'There is no news of Sir Percival that I don't expect, except the news of his death.' I remembered the stealthy interest in her eyes when they settled on me at parting after she had spoken those words. Some instinct, deep in my heart, which I felt to be a true one, made the prospect of again entering her presence repulsive to me. I turned away from the square and went straight back to the hotel. Some hours later, while I was resting in the coffee room, a letter was placed in my hands by the waiter. It was addressed to me by name, and I found on inquiry that it had been left at the bar by a woman just as it was near dusk, and just before the gas was lighted. She had said nothing, and she had gone away again before there was time to speak to her or even to notice who she was. I opened the letter. It was neither dated nor signed, and the handwriting was palpably disguised. Before I had read the first sentence, however— I knew who my correspondent was, Mrs. Catherick. The letter ran as follows. I copy it exactly, word for word.
Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Woman in White. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This is the seventh book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn read A Room with a View, Pride and Prejudice, The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.